Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We are looking at verses 1 to 6. We started this last week, and we will hopefully conclude it this week. Let's read the passage. It says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in this way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why don't you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Uh, we saw before that these verses, in these verses, the comparison is in the area of human relationships. Uh, these six verses focus on the negative aspect of a self-righteous, judgmental spirit. And in the following six verses, verses 7 to 12, focus on the contrasting positive aspect of a spirit that's humble, trusting, and loving. And these 12 verses are really <coughs> Jesus' <coughs> summation <coughs> of all the principles of right human relations. Uh, what Jesus teaches in these 12 verses sums up <coughs> the, <coughs> the whole world of human relations in very simple terms, because he speaks with divine authority rather than human wisdom. Now, the passage has been greatly misunderstood uh, over the last 2,000 years, uh, continues to be so, particularly verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. It's been erroneously used by many to suggest that no one should ever evaluate or criticize anyone for anything. But Jesus is not condemning any kind of judging or discriminating. The Bible tells us as believers, that we must discern. We must know the truth from falsehood. The whole Sermon on the Mount <coughs> is predicated <coughs> on a clear understanding of the distinction between true religion and false religion, between hypocrisy and truth. We're not to lack discrimination. We're not to be blind. We're not to be wishy-washy compromisers. Now, we're told all through the Bible to discern and to test the spirits, to have our senses trained to discern good and evil, Hebrews 5.14. So we must discern, we must discriminate, we must evaluate. So what's he talking about then? He's talking about the critical, judgmental, condemning, self-righteous egotism of the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus condemned sin repeatedly. He judged, he evaluated, he criticized. Uh, so we're not talking about that kind of judgment. We're talking about the ugly, self-righteous, judgmental, critical spirit like the Pharisees. We must judge. We must evaluate. We must make doctrinal distinctions. We must mark the people who despise true doctrine, and we must avoid those people. But we're not going to judge people's motives. We're not to condemn them because they don't look like we think they ought to look. Or they don't talk or act like we think they ought to talk or act. Or they don't come up to our supposed 
self-righteous standard. We have no business doing that. That is forbidden. Uh, so in verses 1 to 6, Jesus forbids self-righteous, sufficient, hasty, unmerciful, uh, prejudiced, unwarranted condemnation based on human standards and human understanding. And he gives three reasons why that judgment is sinful. Uh, one, it reveals an erroneous view of God. Second, it reveals an erroneous view of others. And third, it reveals an erroneous view of self. Uh, uh, so let's begin. We, we looked last week at an erroneous view of God. Verse 1 says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now with this phrase, Jesus <coughs> reminds the Pharisees that they're not the final court. To judge another person's motives or to curse to condemnation is to play God. Every time you sit in judgment of someone's uh, of someone else, criticizing their motives, you're playing God. Now, please understand that's not true if the person has committed an obvious sin, something which Scripture clearly forbids. It's when you set yourself up as the authority and you're going to call all the shots and you're going to determine who fits and who makes the standard. When you do that, you've taken God's seat. He's saying, don't play God. You don't know what battles this person's been through that made him what he is. God may see that individual situation very differently than you do. So don't assume the role of God by judging the motives and hearts of others by any standard other than the clear, unequivocal truths found in God's word. Be extremely careful that you don't stray into his area of responsibility. Uh, to do so is to set yourself up as the authority rather than God. So that's the first point. The second point, he says, it reveals an erroneous view of others. Verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, some people think this verse is talking about human relationships. That is, if you judge someone, they'll judge you in the same way. There's a sense in which it's true that the way we treat others, they'll in turn treat us. But that's not the heart of this verse at all. Uh, that misses the point. Far more than what others think of us and how they judge us, we're to be concerned about what God thinks about us and how he judges us. And I believe verse 2 of our text is talking about God's judgment. What Jesus is saying is whatever kind of judgment you judge others with, God will judge you with. And whatever standard of measure you use to measure others, that's the standard God will use to measure you. In other words, God is going to judge you on the basis of your level of knowledge, and your level of understanding, your light. So if you say, well, I know enough to judge all of you people on such and such an issue, uh, then God will use that standard to judge you on those matters because you claim that you meet that standard. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. That's why James 3.1 is so important. Uh, it says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such will incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because the one who stands up and teaches others is the one who gives evidence of knowing the truth. And what you know is that upon which you're going to be judged. And the more you know, the severer the judgment. So Jesus is saying to them, look, you think that by knowing God's law, 
and all of these rules that you think are the proper way to obey that law, you can now judge others and look down on them because they don't meet your standard. But I'm telling you that by knowing all of that, you're demonstrating the fact that you're responsible to, for having lived up to all of it. And if you haven't, you're going to be judged by it. You see, they had a wrong view of others. They thought they were exempt, but that everyone else was going to get it. And Jesus says, no, I don't have a double standard. Uh, you're going to be judged on the same basis that you're judging everyone else. In Romans 2, 1 and 2, Paul said the same thing. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. You see, with God, there's no double standard. We should not judge others because in judging others, we play God. And in judging others, we assume that we are so much better than them that we're exempt from the rules that they're not exempt from. And so we miss the point. That's the wrong view of others. They're not under us. They're equal with us. And God will judge us by the same standard. So if you're a gossip who goes around making critical judgmental evaluations of others, you're under the false illusion that you're exempt from judgment. For whatever you condemn in someone else, you prove that you should be condemned for that in your own life by virtue of such knowledge. Such judgment becomes a boomerang, if you wish. You throw it out and it comes right back. An unloving judgment will return on your own head at the hand of God. Do you remember Haman in the book of Esther? He built a gallows in which he planned to hang Mordecai, wound up being hanged on his own gallows. In Judges 1, there's a king named uh, Adonai Bezek uh, who had conquered 70 other kings and had their thumbs and their big toes cut off. Uh, but when he was captured, they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And he said, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Judges 1-7. Uh, listen, to judge wrongly is to play God. And it's a serious thing because you'll be biased. And you'll be bribed by your own self-righteousness, by your own prideful ego. And you can't judge with righteous judgment because you don't have all the facts. In ancient Persia, there was a judge who took a bribe so that he would render a false verdict. And Cambyses was the Persian king. And he heard what happened. And so he ordered that judge to be executed. And then after the judge was executed, Cambyses ordered his soldiers to strip the skin off of the judge's body and to use it to upholster a chair with the skin of that corrupt judge. And so that was done. And then the chair, that chair became the chair upon which every judge who followed that corrupt judge in that court was required to sit so that they would be reminded of the consequences of perverting justice. I would say that's a fairly good reminder. <laughs> you see, <clears throat> we're prejudiced by our own egos, and we're made impotent by our own ignorance. And we have no business trying to play God or assume 
were operating on a higher standard than everyone else. Well, finally, we come to the third reason not to judge. When you critically judge other people, it reveals an erroneous view of yourself. And this is in verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> it says, why do you not look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Jesus is saying, do you think you're so good that you can go around judging everyone else? Don't you think you have anything to work on? That you've got everything under control so that you can spend all your time evaluating others? I think you'd better do some self-evaluation before you start evaluating and judging others. And he uses a strange word picture to illustrate what he's saying. Jesus is using extreme hyperbole here. Uh, he's being very sarcastic with an absolutely <clears throat> impossible word picture. He says, <clears throat> why do you look? And that's a present active verb. Why are you continually looking at the speck? And that means a small splinter, a piece of sawdust, uh, perhaps even a tiny piece of chaff that blows into one's eyes while winnowing grain. Uh, that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log. That word refers to a beam of wood, the kind of massive timber that was used to hold up the ceiling of a building. Uh, when you're sitting in church later this morning, look up at those beams that transverse the uh, ceiling of the church and just imagine one of those stuck in your eye. That's the kind of beam Jesus is talking about here. Uh, so you're looking at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but you don't even notice the huge log that's in your own eye. So that's the picture. Now I'm sure that at some time in the past, you have gotten something in your eye, and you were miserable. It hurts so bad, but you know you aren't supposed to rub it because that can scratch and damage your eye. And until you got it washed out, or someone else was able to remove it for you, you were absolutely miserable. I once uh, got a small piece of glass in my eye, and until it was removed, I was in agony. Uh, almost as much from having to force myself not to scratch it as from the glass which was scratching my eye. Uh, well, here's a guy <clears throat> with a <clears throat> speck in his eye, and here comes along comes a guy who says, let me help you. And sticking out of his eye is a 12-foot-long 8 by 8 beam. Uh, I mean, he can't even get close enough to the guy to help him out, and even if he could, he couldn't see well enough to remove it. It's the blind leading the blind. Verse 4, <clears throat> Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. Jesus is giving them an extremely ridiculous comparative illustration to show the Pharisees just how ridiculous it was for them to sit in judgment of others when they were massive hypocrites themselves. And of course, these truths apply to us as well. <clears throat> we're unfit judges, not only because we're fallible and we can't play the part of God, and because we're partial in our own favor and tend to think that our standard's better than everyone else's, but also because we're hopelessly and utterly blind when it comes to perception. 
Because as soon as you judge someone in order to force them to come into compliance with your standard, you give evidence of the fact that you're blind or else you'd be working on your own plank instead of their spec. That's Jesus' point. Now, people have argued back and forth about what the spec is. And I thought about asking you to tell me what it was, but I thought that could, we could really run astray there. And what the, they, the people want to know what the spec is and what the log is. And some saying the spec is referring to a small minor sin and the log is referring to some kind of large vulgar vile sin. That completely misses the point. Jesus is speaking of our moral perception of someone else's sin and righteousness before God in comparison to how we perceive our own sin and our own righteousness. And the people who see everything wrong in someone else's life usually see absolutely nothing wrong in their own life. They don't perceive any moral problem in their own life. Yet they're guilty of the grossest, vilest, most wretched sin possible, and yet they never see it in their own eyes. And that sin is the sin of self-righteousness. That's what the log is. As long as you're self-righteous, as long as you're spiritually proud, so long as you have set yourself up as a judge, you can't help anyone else out of any moral failure or sin in their own lives. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus considered the sin of self-righteousness to be a far worse sin than any others. Why? Because it plays God. It is the vilest of all sins. Every time Jesus condemns sin in the Gospels, he does not condemn sin, the sinner, except for one kind of sinner, the self-righteous sinner. Listen to what John MacArthur writes about this matter. Quote, Self-righteousness is the worst of sins because it is unbelief. It trusts in self rather than God. It trusts in self to determine what is right and wrong and to determine who does what is right or wrong. Self-righteousness claims to be both lawgiver and judge, prerogatives which belong only to the Lord. Consequently, it denies and opposes the gospel because the gospel proclaims man's sinfulness and lostness, even as it proclaims God's mercy and grace. Because the self-righteous person sees no sin in his life, he sees no need for God's grace in his behalf, end quote. And so the log is self-righteousness. And as long as you're self-righteous and you think you're all right and you never bother dealing with your own sin, there's no way that you're going to help anyone else. You're blind. It's the subtle sin of self-righteous judgmental criticism, and it's a massive beam in your own eye. And when you're self-righteous, you cannot help anyone else. Listen, if you're really concerned about righteousness, if you're really concerned about discerning judgment, if you're really concerned about truth, then you're going to see sin in your own life. Uh, you're going to see it first, aren't you? Uh, because if you have the perception to see and know the truth and you have the perception to see righteousness and hunger for it, where you're going to see sin first and most obviously is in your own heart. You see, that's the key 
That's why the key to the whole Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes, what Jesus started with back at the beginning of chapter 5. The very things that he introduced his sermon with. Until you have humbly and meekly hungered and thirsted for righteousness out of a recognition that you're sinful, you can't follow up on any of these other things. The, only, the truly holy person is concerned about his own sinfulness. He's not trying to pull the specks and splinters out of people's eyes when he's got a log in his own eye. He sees himself for the way he is. But at the beginning of verse 5, those who are what Kent Hughes refers to as log-toting speck inspectors. I thought that was a great <laughs> way of putting it. Log-toting speck inspectors. Jesus identifies them as hypocrites. Hippocrates. He calls them false representatives of who they really are, pretending to be righteous when they're not. They're frauds. They don't care about at all about the speck in another person's eye. All they really care about is building themselves up in their own eyes. So what's the answer to this problem? What are we supposed to do? I mean, after you study this passage of Scripture and understand it, you might think, <clears throat> well, I'm certainly not going to judge anyone else. I'm just going to go off out of the way, confess my sin, take care of myself. I'm not going to get into any of this. I'm just going to put on blinders and go through life. I don't want to see what anybody else is doing. But when you do that, you come face to face with a couple of dangers. One is that you will not be willing to confront a sinning brother. You say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to judge anyone else. Who am I to do that? And the second danger is that you'll not discern or discriminate at all. You'll say, well, I don't want to try to determine who's right and who's wrong, so I'll just listen to everybody. And those ideas are dangerous because if we don't confront sin, then the leaven is going to leaven the whole lump of dough. And the church is going to be corrupted by the presence of ongoing sin in the camp. And if we don't discriminate the true from the false, then we'll all go waltzing down the road into heresy. So the two dangers are, one, that we would fail to deal with a brother in sin, and two, that we would fail to deal with a, heret uh, a heretic who would corrupt or mock or blaspheme the faith, and we must do that. So how do we ever know, how, how do we ever do what Scripture commands us to do in terms of helping our fellow brother and sister in Christ when they have some sinful attitude or behavior in their lives that needs to be dealt with? Well, we come to verses 5 and 6, which is the, the right balance. Here's the right balance. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus concludes with an injunction that corrects the wrong kind of judgment by showing the right balance of humility and conviction poverty of spirit and power in the spirit so that we will still reprove and rebuke a sinning brother. First, he says, first take the log out of your own eye. In other words, get rid of your self-righteousness. Get rid of your pride. How do you do that? Well, I believe it's a matter of confession of sin. Uh, first, you have to look and see that your own heart 
is often filled with self-righteousness and a condemning spirit toward others, and you have to confess it as sin. And he uses a very strong word here. It is the word ekbalo. Ekbalo. It means to throw out by force, to cast out, to drive out. It's the word which is often used of Jesus casting out demons. In Matthew 9.38, Jesus used it when he said to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out, to cast out by force workers into his harvest. So when Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye, he means to be serious about getting rid of the sin of self-righteousness in your heart and life. Confess it as sin. Be aware of it when it raises its vile head once again and confess it again. In 1 Corinthians 11.31, Paul tells us if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, God is not going to have to chasten us for self-righteousness if we deal with it. And so we are to bring our lives under the judgment of God and ask him to cleanse and purify and remove the sin of self-righteousness. And once we've done that, then we can move on to the end of verse 5. And then he, where it says, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Listen, we're not doing our brothers and sisters in Christ any favors when we ignore or overlook known sin in their lives. We can't let them go on in sin because according to Leviticus 19.17, to do that is to hate them. So we've got to get it out, but first we've got to deal with ourselves. Here's how David expressed it in Psalm 51.10. He said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And after that is done, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. But there's no way to treat a transgressor the right way and there's no way to convert a sinner to God until I have a clean heart in my own life. When Jesus says in verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged, he's not saying don't help a sinning brother. He's saying get your own heart right with God first because then your help is going to be the right kind. It's going to be the humble help. It's going to be the meek and quiet spirit. Galatians 6.1 instructs us, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. You don't go to a sinning brother looking down on him. You go to him with an attitude of humility, recognizes, recognizing that there, but for the grace of God, you would be in the same situation. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, 
when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The point is that Peter couldn't strengthen the brethren until he saw his own unrighteousness for what it was. Repented of it, turned from his sin, and was restored in fellowship with God. He was useless until his own life was made right. So the key is a selfless, humble love. We're not to be a judge playing God. We're not to feel superior as though there's some kind of double standard. We're not to be a hypocrite looking with scorn on everyone else and not seeing the sin in our own life. But we're to be a brother or sister in Christ and having dealt with our own sin, we're to deal in brotherly love. The second danger we mentioned is that some people these days will say, oh, we can't judge. We, we, we shouldn't emphasize doctrine. We don't want to get anyone upset. We just want to love everybody. Or they'll say, well, we don't want to call certain things sin because other people won't like that. How will we ever reach them with the gospel if we call what they are doing sin? Or don't call that guy a false teacher. Who are you to judge? He says such encouraging things to people and talks about love and Jesus in such a nice way. So they don't discern. They don't discriminate. And to them, verse 6 comes like a thunderbolt that completely shatters the sentimental interpretation that in the name of humility and love, we're never to oppose wrong or correct wrongdoers. It's, it's clear that Jesus does not exclude every kind of judgment. In fact, he just as plainly commands a certain kind of right judgment here, just as he forbids a wrong kind in the preceding verses. Look at it, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now this is a fascinating verse, and I want to pull it together for you because I think it will really open up your understanding. And so we have to identify who are the dogs and who are the hogs. Uh, let's start first with the dogs since they're mentioned first in the verse. Now in biblical times, dogs were seldom kept as house pets. Uh, people didn't consider their dog to be another member of the family and spend money to buy one and then spend more money on license fees and vet bills and food and sweaters and grooming <laughs> and all the rest that goes with owning a dog as a pet in the American culture. In those days, apart from the herd dogs that worked with the flocks, dogs were ugly, half-wild, mangy mongrels that ran in packs and scavenged for food around the city and countryside. They would typically be found around the local garbage dump. And because they were such wild critters, they were often a threat to people because of the danger of disease or rabies and the possibility of them physically attacking people. In fact, the dogs were so rotten and nasty that they would even eat a human body in those days. Uh, when Jezebel was thrown out of the window, Jehu trampled her to death under his horse's hooves, and then the dogs came and ate her body, so the only thing left was her skull, her feet, and her palms of her hands. Uh, you can read about that in 2 Kings 9. Uh, and to be eaten by a dog was considered to be a curse. So dogs were a vile, nasty bunch. Uh, the, dog, the Jews considered them to be filthy and unclean. The, the term dog is used repeatedly in both the Old Testament and the New Testament 
to refer to someone who was vile and mean and worthless. Uh, even the Gentiles considered dogs to be a nasty animal. If you remember when David went out to fight Goliath, Goliath taunted David by saying, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Um, and it was common among the Jews of Jesus' day to refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Uh, and so here Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Uh, so what are the holy things? Well, when you came to the temple to make a sacrifice, the sacrifice would be presented to the Lord. You'd keep a part to take home, a part would go to the priest for his meal, and a part would go on the altar. The part that went on the altar was for God, and it would be consumed on the altar as an offering to the Lord. Now, the priest would never take the part on the altar home. He might throw the bones that were left uh, from the part that he took, and you might throw the bones left from the part out the window of your house uh, to the wild dogs roaming the streets. And that would eat it up, and you didn't have to haul it to the dump. But there was no way that a priest was going to take that which was offered to the Lord on the altar and throw the remains to the dogs. Uh, that would be a horrible desecration by an unclean, filthy, vile animal. So Jesus says, everyone knows that you don't throw the holy part of a sacrifice to a bunch of wild dogs. Uh, in other words, he's saying, look, you better be discriminating in your ministry. There are some people who will hear your teaching, they will respond to the truths of, your, of the word, and they will appreciate your value, but don't waste the precious truths on those who would shred it and tear it without a thought of its significance. And then he gives them a second illustration. He says, do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now pigs were considered by the Jews to be the epitome of uncleanness. That's the reason why Antiochus Epiphanes sacrifice of a pig on the temple altar and forcing the priest to eat it was such an absolute abomination and touched off the Maccabean revolt against the Greeks in 168 BC. Uh, for the prodigal son to reach the point that he would eat pig slop and live with the hogs, he had reached the bottom of the pit of Jewish culture. Isaiah says that the eating of the flesh of a swine was an abomination to God. Because a Jew would never domesticate or keep pigs, most of the swine they encountered were wild animals who foraged for themselves, uh, often in the garbage dumps on the edge of town. Uh, like the scavenging dogs, they were greedy, vicious, and filthy. If you came between them and their food, they would likely turn on you and tear you in with their uh, tusk and sharp hooves. When I was a boy, probably junior high age, my dad worked with a man who raised hog dogs for hunting. Hunting dogs that were trained to corner and take down a wild hog. And the man said that many times the wild boars would manage to cut and tear up some of his dogs so that he had to uh, sew up the cuts on the dogs so that they could heal. Uh, there were even times he lost a dog to a severe injury from a wild hog. 
those are the kind of hogs that Jesus is referring to here. Hogs that are mean and can inflict serious harm if you aren't careful. So Jesus says, don't throw your precious pearls out to the hogs pretending you're feeding them. Uh, you say, well, who would do that? Nobody. That's the point. Who's going to throw a pearl to a hog? A hog can't appreciate a pearl. A hog's going to think it's a big piece of barley, and when it isn't, a hog's going to get mad, and you're going to get it. Uh, hogs don't appreciate pearls, so don't waste precious things on those that don't appreciate them. The point is you need to be discriminating and discerning. We have to learn in our ministry to be discriminating. You don't speak every truth you know to everybody. Paul even told the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3. He said, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? In other words, you're so carnal and fleshly, I couldn't teach you the deep truths of the faith because I didn't want to waste them on your misunderstandings. I wouldn't waste them on your sinfulness. And did you realize that after his resurrection, Jesus never one time appeared to an unbeliever? Only believers. He didn't throw the rich spiritual truths that were intended for believers before those who wouldn't appreciate them. Now, it brings us to the question, who are the hogs and the dogs? Well, look at 2 Peter 2, and I'll show you. 2 Peter chapter 2. Beginning at the very beginning, verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Listen, many are going to follow the pernicious ways of false prophets, false teachers. So all the people who were involved in the false systems of religion, verse 5, the covetous, lustful, evil, vile people such as those who are drowned in the flood, verse 6, those who were destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah for their homosexuality and other abominations. Verse 10, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Verse 11, those who were self-willed, who mock angels, who are, verse 13, stains and blemishes. Verses 14 and 15, accursed children who follow the way of Balaam. Verse 17, springs without water. Verse 18, they're liars who entice for fleshly desires. And 20, verse 20, they have escaped the pollutions of the world through a head knowledge of the Lord Jesus, who've turned away, but they've turned away from the truth. And then verse 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit 
and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, I don't know if you've ever observed that kind of behavior in a dog, but I have. When I was young, we had many dogs that roamed the streets of our town. Uh, yes, they were someone's pet, but they certainly weren't the fluffy little lap dogs like many people have today. Uh, they were mixed breed mongrels. They were domesticated, but they were just outside dogs. Um, no one ever kept them in their house. They lived outside in their owner's yard, either tied up or fenced in with a dog house. But many times, many of them roamed the streets until it was their dinner time when they would go home, kind of like all of us kids who did the same thing in those days. Uh, and so I've seen many of those dogs get sick from something they ate. And they would vomit it up, but later on, they would go back to it and start licking it up. It was gross, but that's what they did. And let me tell you, if you didn't stop your sweet little poodle or chihuahua or shih tzu, it would do the same thing if you gave it the opportunity. It's the nature of a dog. And that's the image that would have been familiar to Peter's readers. You could take one of those street dogs and bring him into your house and try to clean him up and change his diet, but he'll go right back to his vomit if given the opportunity. And you can take a hog inside your house clean it up and tie a bow around its neck. But if you leave the door open, it's gonna go right back out to wallow in the mud. So the hogs and the dogs are those who having known the truth, having heard and understood the gospel message, they have chosen to follow the way of false teachers and false prophets, the liars and deceivers, who will tell them what they want to hear rather than the truth about their sin. They are those who have become so committed and opposed to the truth of the gospel and those who represent it that they harass and persecute those who represent Christ. Very often you will see this with those who are committed to the homosexual lifestyle. Your first reaction is that someone needs to reach them with the gospel. But the truth is that many of them are the dogs and hogs of which Jesus spoke who have willfully and completely turned their backs on the truth of God. I'm not saying that every single one of them is like that, but most of them are. They have chosen to rebel against God's truth to the point that they despise the gospel and anyone who represents it. And there are others who are so committed to an atheistic worldview that they despise anyone who tries to share the gospel with them. They will demean and ridicule and lie and persecute believers to the point of trying to cost them their jobs and livelihood simply for what they believe. They don't want to hear the gospel because it's offensive to them. So we must not allow those kinds of people to trample under their evil feet the purity of the gospel message. That means you will reach a point at which you no longer attempt to share the truth of God's word with them. They have given themselves over to their evil desires and God has given them over to a depraved mind so they will only follow after their father, the devil. The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.6, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. 
when the disciples were sent out in Matthew 10, 11 to 15, Jesus told them, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In other words, if they have a hard heart towards the gospel, don't waste your time with them anymore. Listen, Jesus was patient with Peter when he failed. And he was patient when Tom, with Thomas when he doubted. But he didn't say a single word to Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas had a hardened heart. He didn't waste the pearls. And in Acts 18, the apostle Paul reached, preached to the Jews in Macedonia and they rejected him and the gospel and they mocked and blasphemed. And so he said to them, Acts 18.6, your blood be on your own hand, heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he turned his back and walked out. You see, there comes a time when we have to be careful. In 2 John verses 10 and 11, John says, if someone comes to you and he belongs to one of these false systems, don't let him into your house, don't let him into your church, and don't bid him Godspeed on his journey, because if you do, you're participating in his evil deeds. You say, well, what about his soul? Maybe I could win him to the Lord. You let God take care of that. Don't you let him trample the pearls. Don't throw holy things to dogs. Now, what about what is the holy thing? What are the pearls? I believe without any doubt it's the truth of the word of God. That encompasses the gospel and all the contents of scripture. We don't go on continually sharing those truths with those who are hardened rejectors of Christ and the gospel message. We must make judgments, but they must be proper right judgments. Proper judgments made when we do, when as, as we're told in Titus 3, 10 and 11, when we reject a factious man, he says, reject a factious man, that's a heretic or a cult member, after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Notice that we don't walk away immediately. We warn them a couple of times of the danger they face if they continue to reject the truth of God's word, but then we leave them to their own evil ways. But even then, when we determine that a person is too rebellious to hear the gospel or is a heretical false teacher, we must go our own way, not with self-satisfied judgment, but in great disappointment and sorrow. Remembering how our Lord, as he approached Jerusalem for the last time, saw the city and did what? Wept over it. Those who refused to re recognize and receive their king. And so in conclusion, remember that we must discriminate and judge by dealing with sin in the life of another brother or sister. But we must never be judgmental or critical because when we do so, we set ourselves up for the, some kind, the same kind of self-righteous judge. Uh, we set ourselves up as some kind of self-righteous judge. Frankly, folks, it all comes down to our attitude. Are you criticizing? Are you evaluating? 
Are you discerning? Are you discriminating in order to know the truth and honor God? Or are you doing it to exalt yourself and look down on others because you consider yourself to be superior to them in the eyes of God? Ultimately, it comes down to that attitude. That's what it means when it says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And that brings us to the end of verse, verses 1 through 6. Any questions? Yes, Charlie. Um, what is the proper protocol for family and friends who are Muslims and who wish us Happy Easter and Merry Christmas? Are we supposed to say Happy Ramadan to them? I wouldn't. You wouldn't. Okay. I would I say thank you when they said it to me. Yeah. Okay. But I wouldn't say... I, I would not wish them anything in terms of their, those. it's a completely false system. Yeah, that's what I thought. And so, yeah. What if, if some family member who's a Muslim says to him, Happy Easter, should he in turn say Happy Ramadan to him? My answer is no. Okay. Yes, Barry? You just <clears throat> finished summarizing your message. Uh, think of it as an attitude. But uh, motive is a synonymous keyword, too, isn't it? Your motive? Yeah. yeah. What's your motive? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a church where my daughter lives in and it, when I drove by it, it was a, like a sign they put out and said, we'd like to wish our brothers and sisters a happy Ramadan. Mm -hmm. It's a Christian church. Yeah. There's a lot of churches that say they're Christian. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, anything else? There's a copy that we uh, are not in the second Sunday school class for the story of the dog eating its vomit. Oh, because you didn't go to lunch afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's.